The first speaker is John Hutchins. He's an assistant United States attorney in Denver, Colorado, and a prize-winning amateur historian. Mr. Hutchins was awarded a JD at the University of Colorado School of Law in Boulder, Colorado. He's a retired major, U.S. Army Reserve, and a former city councilman in North Glen, Colorado. He has received historical awards for his work, and today he will speak on Pike to Fitzsimmons, U.S. Army Doctors in Colorado, 1806 to 1921. Thank you very much, and uh, I'll get moving along here quickly. I have 115 years to cover in 20 minutes, and woe, uh, woe betide the uh, person who goes over that time limit. Now, this period of history, by the way, and I'm gonna, this is the American military involvement in Colorado. The 19th century up through the Spanish-American War, up to World War I, of course, was an area that saw great and wonderful uh, progress in medicine. Uh, there, was there were discoveries by uh, Pasteur, Lister, Koch, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, theories about germs, uh, theories about what caused disease, because this was the first step in deciding uh, how to cure diseases. And by the way, the military doctors that came out here to Colorado were part of this uh, medical rev revolution, and I'll talk briefly about that. In many cases, they were better trained than a lot of the civilian doctors because of that. at that time, of course, almost anyone could put up a sign saying that they were a doctor, or a lawyer, by that way. Here's my obligatory statement. The, these uh, comments are not the opinions of the Department of Justice or anybody else. All right, the first uh, involvement we saw with military doctors and surgeons in Colorado uh, uh, came after the American Revolution. And I want to emphasize that, that, the, that you can study and find out how uh, the medical organization in the Army progressed. I've handed out a bibliography. There are three volumes there by Mary Gillette. If you're really interested in this area, read those. But also, you can also see the films of John Ford, for example. John Ford was often very wrong in the history, but his details are, are telling. And so if you see these movies such as Drums Along the Mohawk, uh, Prisoner of Shark Island, uh, the cavalry movies, uh, Horse Soldiers, in my opinion, you see a lot of bad history, but you see army surgeons in all of these movies. And the snippets are pretty accurate. But anyway, uh, and in fact, in one of his movies, The Horse Soldiers, you have John Wayne using the terms sawbones and croakers. So uh, sometimes um, army doctors got respect, uh, sometimes they did not. Now the first involvement of, of army surgeons in Colorado came very early. As all of you know, and I'm going to mention Pike's Peak three times, so if you hear that third time, it means I'm almost finished, I've been successful. The first doctor was Dr. John Robinson, who came with uh, Zebulon Pike. He also attempted to uh, climb what Pike called the highest peak, okay? They failed. Now, Dr. Robinson was medically trained. He was a Virginian. He had uh, practiced, I think, briefly in St. Louis, but we don't hear much about uh, his treatments uh, during the Pike Expedition. And in fact, by nature, it appears Dr. Robinson was more uh, a geographer and uh, a filibuster. Now, after, after uh, Pike and Robinson, we have the Long Expedition. And don't be surprised in about 10 years if uh, PPLD isn't putting on a program about 
the long expedition. But anyway, one of the doctors, one of the surgeons uh, with that expedition was Edwin James. Now remember, this was the period of great discovery. So doctors were seen as very educated men. And, and most of them were men at this point, uh, I'll say unfortunately. Uh, and, and so they were also scientists. And so Edwin James was uh, along with the long expedition as a botanist. He, of course, led the party that did climb Pikes Peak first. And so Pikes Peak was initially named by uh, Lieutenant Long as James Peak, but it didn't survive. So anyway, during this first period when medical surgeons, army surgeons came into Colorado, it was an era of discovery. Now, the next time that military surgeons came into Colorado was during the follow-up expeditions. Uh, you know, prior to the Mexican War, during the Mexican War, after the Mexican War. And when columns of troops came into Colorado, and you're going to probably hear about some of this from Don Headley, uh, they would have surgeons with them. They would have surgeons or assistant surgeons. And probably the biggest uh, convention of medical personnel in Colorado in the early days was in 1846 when Stephen Carney brought in the Army of the West and with him, his own regiment, he had two surgeons. With the Missourians with him, he had three surgeons. One of those volunteer surgeons, by the way, was known for being very lazy and ignorant. Uh, he might have been the one that was left behind at Bent's Fort uh, when Kearney and Donovan headed south onto uh, uh, New Mexico, Mexico, and California. But anyway, during the Civil War also, there were uh, troop movements through Colorado. Colorado had several regiments, as you know. When the Colorado, first Colorado went south to New Mexico, they had two surgeons with them. And of course, these names will be in the published version. Uh, the second Colorado that went uh, east to Missouri had three surgeons with them. Uh, and of course, the troops stationed in Colorado had, had surgeons with them. Some of them did not know how to treat medicine. Sometimes they were drunk, according to their own men, and they didn't know how to handle things like tick fever. Now, there are times, although military surgeons did not at that time treat primarily wounds, which is probably a good thing, uh, there were times when army surgeons, of course, were earning their pay. They were going along on ex expeditions, uh, chasing usually uh, American Indians, Native Americans that uh, were fighting uh, the government at that time. Uh, one of the first uh, military surgeons, uh, one of the most noted early ones that came into Colorado was Dr. Uh, DeWitt Clinton Peters. And he went with Kit, uh, Kit Carson and Colonel Fauntleroy. They started in Taos and they headed, uh, I think they passed through the area of Fort Massachusetts, Fort Garland, and they he headed up chasing Utes and finally fighting at Sawatch, I think, and, uh, and Poncha Pass. But this is a quote from Dr. Peters' uh, sort of autobiography. Uh, the troops caught up with the Utes, and Dr. Peters was, uh, was staying close to them so he could render aid when a Ute attacked him with a bow and arrow. And so Dr. Peters defended himself, and this is a uh, time before digital telephone photographs, of course, and so it's a picture of him, and as he said, he pulled out his pistol, and he shot the Indian, and he rolled uh, dead onto the ground. Dr. Peters, by the way, was more pleased with the expedition because he was able to save one of the wounded horses that came with him, which I guess speaks well for him. Now, in 1868, of course, we have Sandy Forsyth who came into Colorado. That's not this picture. But 
he was attacked by Roman Nose's Cheyennes uh, in eastern Colorado. He had with him Dr. John H. Moores as a contract surgeon. And contract surgeons were ones who were not officially part of the military, but then as now, the Army always has difficulty getting enough doctors. And so Dr. Moore was killed on the first day of fighting, and he lived for four days, and then he finally died because he had been shot in the head. Uh, in 1879, when Major Thornburg was going to the White River uh, Reservation to try and save Nathan Meeker, uh, he was stopped by the Utes at Milk Creek, and that's that, that photograph there. And he had with him a Dr. Robert Grimes, an experienced surgeon who had been a contract surgeon. Then apparently he had taken the medical board tests, which were quite difficult. Then he became an Army surgeon. He also was shot at the beginning of the battle but he was not as badly wounded. Uh, he did survive uh, when the troops were relieved. He wasn't able to help Dr. Kimball operate on the uh, wounded soldiers, but he apparently had one good arm. He was uh, able to help apply chloroform at the time. So anyway, these were the surgeons that were in combat. And, and of course, this was not typical, but that's when the surgeons really earned their pay because they were acting as the battlefield medics. Okay. Now, Colorado, of course, uh, has always had a number of military posts or reservations. Um, would you hand me my water, please? Uh, from 1854, I think we had Fort Massachusetts. Then we had uh, Fort Garland. And so you started to have military surgeons who were assigned to the posts. And many times they were known either as angels or alcoholics. Uh, uh, the 6th Wisconsin Battery, when they were at Fort Lyon uh, in, during the Civil War, they had a young surgeon who was reported to be very young, and what little medical knowledge he had, he lost through drinking. Uh, also, some of the medical orderlies or stewards that helped the doctors also uh, would imbibe too much. And, of course, this was typical being on the frontier. There wasn't much to do. Uh, there wasn't cable television. There weren't, weren't things like that. But military surgeons, by the way, did not just provide medical help to soldiers, which was sometimes very important. Uh, in the 1866 uh, Ute fighting uh, in southern Colorado, for example, the doctor of Fort Garland uh, had several arrow wounds that he successfully treated. But the military surgeons also, it was part of their job to look out after dependents, which they did, to look out after other government officials, uh, like the doctor from Fort Lyon, the military surgeon who looked out after Kit Carson when Kit Carson uh, was uh, superintendent of, of Indian Affairs here in Colorado. And the surgeons would also look out after Native American Indians, okay? Uh, either after battle, if they were hostiles, uh, they would treat them, or more likely they would treat the, the, the local Indians. They would also treat local settlers, okay? Uh, the Army allowed them to do this. Uh, they were supposed to charge for the medical supplies that were used. Uh, of course, they didn't always do this. Some doctors, however, if they lived near a town, they were at a post uh, near a town like at Fort Lewis in southwestern Colorado, they could set up, they were allowed to set up an outside medical practice to supplement their pay. Uh, one of the noted uh, doctors that was at Fort Lewis in the 1880s, and it's listed in the bibliography I handed out, was Bernard Burns. 
and uh, once he treated a local uh, itinerant cowboy who had been shot with an arrow by a ute, and the doctor uh, believed that this was the last man ever killed by an arrow because the man died, and Dr. Uh, Bernard uh, dutifully cut out the ribs okay, with the arrowhead and sent it back to the medical museum uh, in Washington. And then he used, they didn't know who the cowboy was, then they used the body for uh, dissection purposes so he could keep up his medical practice. But anyway, uh, local garrison uh, post-surgeons were very important, often to the surrounding community because they were the first doctors in the area. And that's, that's, that's about 1890s medical personnel. Now, doctors also were used, army doctors, in recruiting. In the early days, this wasn't emphasized, okay, much to the detriment uh, of, of the military. For example, when Donovan's uh, volunteers reported to uh, uh, Colonel Kearney's Army of the West, uh, a surgeon DeCamp said that a lot of them were already sick and weren't any good. Now, regular Army people always had to submit themselves to medical uh, uh, examinations before they joined. Uh, by the time of the Spanish-American War, volunteers were also subjected to the more rigorous examinations. For example, when the 1st Colorado Regiment was mustering in Denver, uh, pre uh, uh, preparatory to going over to the Philippines, all of them had to pass very rig rigorous medical examinations, and consequently, according to the Denver Papers anyway, uh, this is why those troops over in the Philippines suffered much less from disease and, and other problems than did the other volunteer regiments. And locally here in Colorado Springs, when a local battery, Battery C of the 148th Field Artillery was formed in uh, 19... Uh, uh, 16 prior to our entry in World War I, uh, before those men were mustered into medical service, they also were given medical exams by personnel up at Camp George West near Golden, and a third of them failed. There are some recruits at Fort Logan. All right, we're about ready to close up here. Uh, during the 19th century, okay, there were a lot of problems. More men were in, in, in wars were taken out of combat by illness and uh, yellow fever and cholera uh, than from battle wounds. This was typical. And our bad experiences in the Spanish-American War, uh, also with medical advances that had come along, uh, there was a reorganization of the military medical services. Uh, Dr. Leonard Wood became chief of staff. He was a qualified uh, surgeon and a Harvard uh, man. <clears throat> and so the military, this was when the military surgeon really became the specialist, became a doctor, and, and, and they realized that you needed different doctors to solve different problems. Aviation was one example. Uh, they realized that aviators needed to pass special physicals. And this is my third mention of Pikes Peak. Uh, some of the studies about the effects on high altitude on young men were conducted at Pikes Peak. Okay, they, they didn't have big C-130 transports then to do it in. So anyway, Colorado was brought into the modern age, and in World War I, uh, <clears throat> there was a young Kansan, uh, Lieutenant uh, Fitzsimmons, William Thomas Fitzsimmons. He was killed. And Colorado realized, local citizens, it really is good to have the federal government in here spending money. 
And Colorado was recognized as, as being an area where tubercular people could come. And so Fitzsimmons was established first, and this is in Aurora, Colorado, as Camp Number 21. And it was to assist uh, with the taking care of men who had been gassed, who had taken mustard gas and things like that. And this is a photograph of the building that was built in 1941. So Colorado had become a place where there were permanent medical facilities, but this also brought about a change uh, in our short little story that we now have, I think, very brave and dedicated medical doctors like Dr. Dave Hanida we see on television. And so we've changed from doctors coming into Colorado and living here in garrison or being uh, accidental tourists. The military now has a system, and it started uh, in World War II in Korea and then Vietnam, where, where they need doctors, they send doctors. And if they need doctors, they'll bring them here. And that's a lot, a lot different. I mean, when Katrina uh, happened, they sent a lot of doctors there. Whereas uh, when we had the 1921 Pueblo flood, uh, Fitzsimmons locally sent doctors. So anyway, I think this, my time is up. I better wrap up. And I, this has just been a glance at Army surgeons in Colorado. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Hutchins. Our next speaker is Don Headley, has been a historical interpreter for 28 years. For 20 of these years, he's interpreted the role of Dr. Hempstead, the first resident doctor in Colorado, and a physician at Old Bent's Fort. Throughout the past four years, he was involved in interpreting the bicentennial commemoratives of the Lewis and Clark and Zebulon Pike expeditions for the Lewis, Louisiana Purchase. His program today will be And the Patient Recovered, Medical Practice to the Santa Fe Trail and Bent's Fort. Mr. Headley. Okay, thank you. Uh, Going back to the uh, statements being made about the physicians of the time period, I have to give a little background history, how I got involved in this uh, medical profession as a 19th century physician. Uh, my young boys were interested in living history, so I became involved with them too. Naturally, being young, they were interested in the military. So after several years of crawling around the mud and the weeds, pursuing imaginary enemies, I suddenly decided I needed to do something else. So one evening, I was talking to another interpretive historian friend of mine. I said, Bob, tell me something I can do where I can stay in camp, enjoy the comforts of camp. He said, well, become a physician surgeon. I said, I don't know anything about medicine. I'm a school teacher. He said, well, he says, you can play cards, can't you? I said, yes. He said, you can drink whiskey, can't you? I said, oh, yes. He says, well, you're a physician surgeon. <laughs> of course, he was alluding to some of the references that were previously made. So I got to thinking about this, and I spent, as any interpretive historian should do, the next year, year and a half, uh, studying 19th century medicine out of the Denver Public Library, suddenly realizing that almost everyone in this room has more knowledge about health care than any physician did of that time period. So I started doing my medical work at Bensel Fort, uh, doing the role of Dr. Edward L. Hempstead, which was probably the first resident historian here in Colorado. And of course, the Santa Fe Trail, which runs about a mile from my house, Bent's Fort's about 10 miles away, has always been a very, very deep interest of mine. Of course, the trail was formed in 1821 
when William Becknell was out on the plains trading with the Indians, when the Mexican troops approached him and told him that Mexico was now free from Spanish rule and they were welcome to come there and trade. And he did that very thing, took his meager supply of trade goods and made a huge profit, went back to Missouri, told him of this wonderful experience and of course the great interstate, and basically that's what the Santa Fe Trail was, was an interstate highway of commerce, was born and continued for many, many years. Now if you read all the journals and the books about the Santa Fe Trail, you can't help but notice there's a lot of reference to medical experiences. And most of the things I'm talking about today have been gleamed from these journals. Doctors of the period, of course, there was, as I've mentioned, uh, there was Dr. Edward L. Hempstead, the first resident physician. Their training, of course, as been previously referenced, was very minimal. Some did go to medical school, maybe a couple years, mostly classroom lectures, very little hands-on experience. Some apprenticed themselves to established physicians, and some, much like the doctor you will see in the next slide, just became one. <laughs> and uh, has been fairly successful, his practice at Ben Fort, I might say. Of course, these are a couple certificates. If you were lucky enough to have attended a school back east, one of the several medical schools in the university at the time, you were usually issued a medical diploma showing that you had achieved this degree of success. Now, if you couldn't find a doctor, one of the common publications of the time was Dr. Gunn's Domestic Medicine or Poor Man's Friend in the Hours of Affliction, Pain, and Sickness, published in 1830. And here's a quote from the many good things to be read in this publication. He says, any man, unless he was a fool or an idiot, could amputate an arm or a leg, provided he'd had a half a dozen men to hold the victim down. And that's what we have right here in this slide. Of course, uh, amputation I'll be referring to uh, quite frequently. I was once discussing an amputation at the fort in a children's program and noticed a young student go over and lean against her teacher's side and the teacher took her out and later on I said, what was wrong with that young lady? She says, you were doing a darn good job describing that amputation. <laughs> she was about ready to pass out. So, uh, of course, there is some of the addresses used, the tourniquet and the, and the artillery uh, forceps in there used to do an amputation. Of course, as it's been mentioned earlier, at this particular time to alleviate the pain of a person as well as perhaps the pain of the doctor, the most common painkiller was none other than good old whiskey or good old brandy, which was usually liberally applied to the patient, I suspect also to the doctor, before any surgical uh, was taken place. There gives you a good view of what a ampute an amputation kit of that time period looked like, the various instruments that were used, the saw, the knives, and so on, that were used to take off a limb. And later I will refer to my favorite amputation on the Santa Fe Trail. Uh, some other early medical instruments that were probably used by the doctors on the trail, and there were many doctors that came over the trail. Uh, you see up in the upper left-hand corner uh, the tongue depressor, 
of which the doctor usually had one. <laughs> he used on all of his patients, usually made of bone or ivory. He also had to serve as a dentist, and that's referred to as a tooth key to extract teeth. The early uh, monaural uh, Heart listening devices here, stethoscopes, of course, been in 1806 by a French doctor, Lenec, were nothing more than hollow wooden tubes. And according to the stories I remember, he was examining a very buxom young patient, which did not wish to have his ear placed against her chest. And he remembered as a child thumping on a hollow log and the sounds reverberating through it and came up with the idea of the stethoscope. Of course, up in the upper left-hand corner here, we have a clyster. Now, some people in here might know that term. Of course, most of us know it as an enema. I'm finding that modern-day kids don't know about enemas even, what's going on in the medical world. Here, of course, is a more modern stethoscope when the rubber tube was invented. Over here, we have a bleeding instrument, a spring-loaded fleam to, of course, to bleed. And I'll talk more about bleeding in a minute. And, of course, the cupping devices that were also used. And here we have a good example of a bleeding. During this time period, it was believed that if you were ill, that your body humors were bad, the fluids in your body. It might be blood, it might be stool, it might be perspiration, or whatever, and these had to be eliminated. So bleeding was a very common medical practice of this particular time period. And of course, leeches were used, but I have yet, I, I love to play with the leeches in my medical uh, interpretation, but I have yet to really find that leeches perhaps were used at Bent's Fort or on the trail, probably due to the fact it was probably very difficult to keep them uh, for that purpose. And of course, here is a good example of a very thorough leeching. Calomel was probably the most common medication used at the time. And from Francis Parkman's book, The Oregon Trail, we have the following quote. It says, Bent's Fort does not supply the best accommodations for an invalid. The sick chamber was a little mud room where he, Parkman's friend, Tete Rouge, and a companion attacked by the same disease were laid together with nothing but a buffalo robe between them and the ground. The assistant surgeon's deputy visited them once a day and brought each a huge dose of calomel. In spite of the doctor, he, meaning the companion, eventually died. Of course, we know calomel contained mercury, highly toxic, and sometimes the symptoms from the medication were worse than the symptoms of the disease that the person was uh, suffering. Of course, each doctor this time period had to have his own medical supplies. Even William Bent at Bent's Fort is reputed to have kept a very good supply of medicine on hand, and in his own fashion practiced some very rudimentary uh, medical type stuff. Malaria on the trail was very, very common. Matter of fact, Louis Gerard, a young teenage, 18-year-old adventurer who wrote Watoya on the Taos Trail, says in his journal, on the 19th, the train was started along a heavy road. Dense fogs dampened our clothing and spirits, but for brandies and liquor, fever and ague would have predominated. As for cholagog, quinine, and pills were administered by the doctor as I was styled. And this young man was nothing more than a teenager on the Santa Fe Trail. Okay, and of course, uh, later Morris learned about malaria, but at this time it was considered to be caused by the malaria, malaria the bad airs that were breathed. Of course, quinine coming from the Peruvian or Jesuit bark from South America, 
Often you read in the very er early journals that people partook of the barks, then eventually and the chemists were able to create the chemical form of quinine, which you always had with you on the trail. But the man who did the most was Dr. John Sappington out of Arrow Rock, Missouri. He put quinine in the pill form so it could be easily carried. And there are a lot of references to this pill being carried by the many people that traverse the Santa Fe Trail. So it was the quinine that was probably the best and the most important medicine of this particular time period. Of course, scurvy. Uh, we often don't think of scurvy as being an inland disease, as being something on the high seas. But it did affect many people coming across the trail. Once again, Louis Gerard says in his journal, many employees were afflicted with scurvy, a disease brought on by a great change from their usual diet to super fine flour and fat mess pork. Then later he describes the very gory details of people dying from scurvy. Then he says, dependent upon themselves for medicine, they suffer much. Several poor fellows were far gone in the disease, and anodyne, which I had, relieved them. So this was a common, even the army, and the Army of the West has been alluded to before. Many of the soldiers coming across the trail suffered from scurvy. Once they reached Santa Fe and learned to eat one of my favorite foods, good green chili, then scurvy became a lesser of a problem among the Army people. Of course, cholera has already been mentioned. Cholera is very important as uh, a devastating effect upon many things on the trail. Matter of fact, in 1849, when William Bent closes down the fort, cholera has often been listed by historians as one of the deciding factors because cholera was running rampant at that particular time, along with many other things that probably made William decide to desert that favorite, that uh, famous fort on the prairie. And of course, smallpox played a very early role in the development of Bent's Fort. When the Mexican laborers were brought up out of New Mexico to build the fort, a smallpox academic, uh, epidemic hit and many of them died. Even Kit Carson and William Bent suffered from the ravages of the disease. And if you look at some of the photos and pictures of them, you can still see the pock marks in the f in their, on their face. And of course, the Indians had to be cautioned to stay away because it had a devastating effect upon the Native Americans, and they were always kept at bay. There's that famous castle on the plains, of which I quite often go to, and some very interesting things have happened there medical. Like I said, the first resident physician in the state of Colorado, Dr. Edward L. Hempstead, of which we know very little of his medical practice. Once again, in the journals, it references him taking care of the fort, doing all kinds of botanical things, working with uh, other people. But uh, like uh, John uh, Hamilton with Pike, very little is ever mentioned about his capabilities as a medical person. Of course, over there in the lower left-hand corner, we have William Bent. And one of the interesting experiences with William comes is told to us from George Bird Grinnell's Bent's Old Fort and its Builders. This is from a manuscript by Dr. W.M. Boggs. He said, William Bent had contracted a severe cold and a sore throat, a putrid sore throat. 
It was hard for him to swallow. He could only talk in a whisper until his throat closed and his wife fed him broth through a quill which we, he, she passed down his throat. Okay, Bent, knowing what he was going to die, needed medical attention. So he sent for the Cheyenne Indian doctor called Lawyer. Strange name for a doctor, but let me put the two together. Okay, lawyer came to the fort, went outside the fort gate, collected some small sand burrs, took them back into the fort and threaded them on some uh, sinew and tied a knot in the end so they wouldn't slip off, doused them around in some fat grease, took a stick and proceeded to force these down Bent's throat several times. Each time he extracted these birds from the throat, the putrid matter that was blocking Bent's throat came out. And as he continues in his uh, telling of this story, he says there that um, the throat passage opened so Bent could swallow soup, and in a few days he could eat food. He was considered, referring to Lawyer, the Cheyenne doctor, by all whites that knew him, the shrewdest doctor belonging to the tribe. And but for this simple remedy, Bent would have died. No one but an Indian would ever thought of resorting to such a remedy. Whoop, what happened there? Did I press the wrong button? Help me there. <laughs> okay, what we're going to do, I need to go back to Susan uh, Shelby McGoffin, which was mentioned earlier. I'm not very good at all this modern technology stuff, you know. Okay, Susan Shelby McGoffin, of course, was the young bride of 18 years age of none other than Samuel McGoffin, the famous Santa Fe trader. They were f coming to Bent's Fort with the Army of the West. Susan becomes ill and is quickly rushed to the fort where she is attended by a doctor from one of the wagon trains, a Belgian doctor, Dr. Felipe Massure. And she was expecting a child, so she was in sort of dire straits as far as her physical condition. And we see young Susan over here, and up here we have the replica of the room where she stayed where you can go visit today. And I've had the pleasure of practicing medicine in this room for many, many years, and even sleeping in that wonderful bed. Everyone else sleeps on the floor. Okay, she says in her journal, which is called Down the Santa Fe Trail into Mexico, I have great confidence in his knowledge and capacity for relieving me, she adds. The idea of being sick on the plains is not at all pleasant to me. It's rather terrifying. Okay, then on her 19th birthday, she writes, I'm sick. Strange sensations in my head, my back, my hips. I am obliged to lie down most of the time. Then on the following day, she says, My pains commence and continue until midnight after much agony, which was relieved a little at times by the medicine given by Dr. Masseret. All was over. I sunk into kind of a lethargy into my husband's arms. Of course, we know Susan does recover, mm -hmm. and her journal gives us some of the best insights about the Santa Fe Trail and Ben so forth. I always highly recommend that to anyone interested in this era of history. Okay, make sure I hit the right button this time. Ah, amputation, my favorite topic. Okay, <laughs> I shall close this with reading you an excerpt from Alfonso Whitmore's Diary of 1828 on the journey to Santa Fe. As he says, perhaps this is my presentation here, 
Permit me to conclude this communication, which perhaps has already extended beyond the endurance, with the description of a surgical operation that was performed on the plains beyond the Arkansas. One of the travelers had a dangerous gunshot wound in the arm. He was reduced to the alternative of death or amputation. The last was attempted with such instruments as could be found in camp. The operation was performed by one of the hunters of the company who had attained some celebrity in cutting out hump meat. A small cord was twisted around the limb, was the tourniquet. The cutis was separated from the muscles by the application of the sharpest butcher knife in camp. The muscles were divided and the bone cut asunder with a carpenter saw. It was not deemed necessary to take up the arteries and a large wagon boat was heated with which the stump was severed so effectively as to prevent hemorrhage. The whole operation was concluded by the application of a dressing from the nearest tar bucket. Not a groan nor a sigh was uttered during the operation and the patient recovered. <laughs> Thank you very much. I, I didn't bring my medical instruments today, so no, no surgery will be performed. You can see why he wasn't right before lunch. Uh, 